I honestly don't know. Probably got more intelligence than I have this time of the morning. I think it's a good but bad thing. It makes us think about what it is that we should be as humans. I like robots. We can do so many things. People start to question the way that we're treating them. AI kind of makes me nervous. We won't worry about it until it hits us. I wouldn't know where to start with it. And what they are talking about there is artificial intelligence, or AI. And that's the subject of this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills. And with me, Chris Smith. Coming up in this hour, we're aiming to answer seven of the most significant questions that people are asking about artificial intelligence, including how does this technology work? How is it going to change the world? Is humanity under threat? And will it steal my job? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, to talk AI, we have with us a panel of industry experts. Peter Clark is a computational biologist. He also co-founded a startup which is called Resurgo Genetics. What does that aim to do, Peter? Um, so we're trying to use some of these latest computational techniques, similar to AI and others, to try and understand really how cells think and communicate and make living systems. When you say how cells think, so you're basically modelling a cell in a computer. So instead of having to grow a cell in a dish, you're growing a cell in a computer chip, really. We're trying to create computer models of how the networks inside cells process information and drive their behaviour. But it's always we're trying to understand how cells work by modelling them in a computer. Thank you, Peter. Also with us, Simon Beard. Simon is a research associate at the Centre for Study on Existential Risk. That means he ponders the risks of AI and how likely they are. He was also a parliamentary candidate in the last general election. He's involved in the intersection between AI and government. Simon, does this subject cause you sleepless nights? No, um, but that's mostly because I get the privilege to actually work on this. You know, I know what we can do to stop it. All you know, dear listener, is that this is a big problem. So you have reason to worry. But when you actually start working on this, it becomes from fear to hope quite quickly. So I, there are very few gloomy people in existential risk. I'm sure. Thank you, Simon. Uh, also here is Henry Shevlin. Now, Henry's a philosopher of mind, and he's a research associate with the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. I didn't know there was such a thing. What a fantastic title to have. Oh, we're very lucky. And it's a brand new centre um, founded by a generous donation from the Leverhulme Trust. And it aims to explore the risks and benefits and opportunities of AI that we face both in the short term with things like automation and in the longer run with risks like the robot apocalypse. Looking at business as well, we have with us Hitesh Sangani. Now, Hitesh is the Director of Emerging Innovations and Scientific Partnering and Alliances at AstraZeneca. He's also an associate at the University of Cambridge's Judge Business School. So, Hitesh, you've, I suppose it's fair to say, you've got your eye on how AI is going to affect business in general, but specifically the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I think we're going to be, hopefully later on, talking about how it's going to help uh, increase productivity in R&D because it's quite a complex business. And so hopefully we'll be able to give you some examples of how we're using it. Looking forward to hearing them. So that's our panel. Plus, we actually have a very special guest in the studio today. She just fell asleep, so let's see if she's woken up. Alexa, introduce yourself. I'm Alexa, and I'm designed around your voice. You can ask me to play music, answer questions... Get the weather and sports scores, create to-do lists and much more. She is the Amazon Echo's voice recognition service, which is one of many available, and was actually invented where we are here in Cambridge. So we've invited her onto the show and we'll be asking her some more things later. But now let's kick off with our first question. What is artificial intelligence? Nice and simple to get us started. So Peter Clark from Resurgo Genetics, uh, let's start with you. Can you give us AI 101? Artificial intelligence is the standard sort of definition is that these are computational systems, artificial systems that are showing behaviours that we would attribute to intelligent things. Having machines which can uh, exhibit behaviours which we would attribute just by our definition, the human word intelligence to. So it's, it's, a, fairly, it's a fairly broad 
brush. Mm, there seems to be this. There seems to be a lot of AI use. So a company will say we use AI to do this, but then in the film, it's like AI is this big robot running around taking over the world. So, what's the difference between the things we're using now and I guess what the media considers as AI? I think well, there's the kind of sci-fi version of AI, which is the Terminator roaming around, hunting you down, and and some sort of super intelligence controlling everything, um, which really is far off in the future at the moment I mean, we can see it on the horizon we we need to prepare to think about it but it's not something that's immediate whereas there is sort of ai that's touching all of our lives every day so you know your people have stopped worrying about spam in their emails because there's these machine learning algorithms that people are saying you know it's, it's at what level of intelligence would do you classify it as intelligent so in, in some ways everyone thinks of ai as being the future um, but but phones that recognise you, things like Alexa, ten years ago, that would con- be considered to be a future intelligence, a sci-fi thing. So we just don't necessarily know how fast or how quickly things are going to progress over the next few years. Simon, is this something you think about when you're considering the the risks? I suppose are, are there different types of AI? Well, it's not so much different types, but for the purpose of understanding the risks associated with AI, it is useful to make a couple of distinctions. So pretty much every form of AI we have at the moment is what we classify as narrow AI. That means we've developed an artificial intelligence, but we've developed it to do something really quite specific. And it can learn and it can be creative and do all sorts of things, but only within that narrow domain. So a chess robot can play chess, a Go robot can play Go, a Go robot can't play chess and vice versa. Now, much of the risk that we talk about is actually associated with a slightly different concept, which is general AI. And that's AI that has all these capacities of intelligence systems and can apply them to any domain without restriction. So that's intelligence that has the same sort of features that human intelligence has, that we can learn something in one field, apply it to a different field, and we can do different things, we can do different things at the same time and so on. And there's really no restrictions on what we can and can't do. Then there's the idea of superintelligence. Now, superintelligence is by definition general artificial intelligence, but it's general artificial intelligence that is better than humans. That is, its problem-solving capabilities are better. Its ability to coordinate between different intelligences is better. Its creativity is better. And it's when you get to superintelligence that you then get these risks of, well, if it can do better than we can, and it decides to do anything that might not be in our interest, not necessarily for any malice whatsoever, It may well be doing exactly what we told it to do, but we still might not be able to adapt or to respond effectively. And we might find ourselves on the losing end of a really big problem that we are not able to solve. Mm, And I know we'll be discussing the risks in a little more detail later. But Peter, how does this actually work then, this this AI, narrow and general? With narrow AI, it's um, you're really giving it a task and these systems can learn to kind of perfect that task. Um, So, for example, playing Go, which is uh, some recent work, they can become very good at at specific tasks. And and they do surpass human capability on on those tasks. But actually, really, what we're moving towards is that rather than learning a particular task, what you want to do is you want to learn the world, right? And it's having a model of the world. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel or the darkness at the end of the tunnel, depending on which way you're... Maybe it's the train coming towards us, but the um, but we, we can see that coming and we, ha- we have to get ready for it because it could come a lot quicker than we expect or it could be quite slow, but we just we need to prepare. We'll consider more about the risks later on in the programme. First, let's consider our next question. Why do we want artificial intelligence? With us in the studio, uh, Hitesh from AstraZeneca, you're the Director of Emerging Innovations at AstraZeneca. So what is your take on why we need to be considering AI as a prospect for business in general, but also the pharmaceutical industry? So I guess uh, in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, we obviously constantly trying to discover new medicines and it's not a trivial exercise as we're finding out. In fact, we spend $6 billion a year trying to do this. You know, we see it utilized in a number of different ways in terms of drug discovery. Uh, I'm a chemist by training and I think we've been using it in that screen. Also, drug repositioning. So something, for example, looking at a new disease area, we might try and use, uh, understand some data, put it together, use sort of algorithms, essentially, which I, I sort of consider as artificial intelligence and use that to come up with new ways to uh, reposition molecules, i.e. think about new indications for ducks. So there are a lot of drugs out there that might work in one disease area, but actually you can use intelligence to maybe reposition them and say, actually, could it also 
work in this disease area. But, but why is that better than a chemist? Uh, I think it's augmenting uh, chemists working. I think that's how I like to think of intelligence. I'm not a, I'm a pragmatist, and I like to think that in this kind of new technology, I guess, uh, is going to help me uh, discover drugs uh, in better ways and uh, and more efficiently. So, but how? What specifically are going to be the targets you're yeah, going to go for, and how does this integrate into the existing business? Because we've known for a long time how we cook up some molecules and we try them and we see if they yeah. do something. Um, how is this going to revolutionise your business? I mean, it's in. In so many ways, as I said, in drug discovery, for example, as a chemist, uh, you know, what I used to do and I still do it now and then is we get a lot of data from our biologists, for example, and we have to try and design a molecule and optimize it. Because when we make a molecule, unfortunately, the first molecule we make isn't the drug. We have to usually end up making 30,000 molecules and then hopefully find that, find that drug in there. And typically, what we're trying to do is to bring lots of different data sets together and then work out what to, what to make next. So I think artificial intelligence in that area will hopefully speed up that process and say, actually, have you thought about making this molecule next? And how much do you think that AI is being used in different businesses is it everyone who's investing into this uh, i think uh, there's a lot of hype i'm going to be honest with you but i think there's definitely people are using it we, we you know we're definitely using it uh, and i'm hearing from my uh, colleagues that i'm currently doing an mba and i'm seeing a lot of people from other industries and i'm also they're also talking about it so i think yeah it's definitely being used in, in other industries especially in, especially in ours and it's, when people are modeling where they see the industry going and how much this is going to be worth what sorts of numbers are they putting on this in terms of what contribution it could make to a sector and particularly pharmaceuticals I have not really thought about that, but I think if it can speed up, you know, drug discovery for us, you know, if it can speed up from us costing $6 billion a year in research, and I think it costs about $1.5 on average to discover a drug, if we can uh, speed that up by half, maybe possible, then that's $600 million. Yeah, it could be huge. In terms of if we, if we really cracked like um, artificial general intelligence, why, why would that be a good thing? Like what kind of uses could we have for, for something like super powered? Henry? The sky's the limit, really. Um, and it's very hard to even imagine um, what an artificial general intelligence could be like, especially if you're thinking about something even smarter than a human being. But um, just imagine if we brought into our world a being who was far smarter than us, who exist, who was to us as, uh, for example, we are to chimpanzees or simpler animals. Think about everything we could do to help chimpanzees if we put our minds to it. And imagine if we could get a, get a being like that on side for us. Everything from sort of extended lifespans to amazing new technologies to all our dreams come true. And Simon, you are a parliamentary candidate. You're trying to get the parliament interested in this kind of thing. What sorts of numbers are floating around when parliamentarians get together and talk about this kind of thing? What sorts of numbers are people saying in terms of how much of a difference this could make? Well, I mean, that that's a big question. And I think people don't really want to tie themselves too much in a specific prediction. You know, we've had various reports from, uh, for instance, the World Economic Forum put out their fourth industrial revolution report, which suggests that AI could play a completely transformational role in the global economy. We're going to talk about jobs later on. And, you know, AI could move us back into economic growth rates higher than anything else we've ever seen. But on the other hand, we know that all the technological progress that we've had so far, which has involved a lot of breakthroughs, which were supposed to really transform the economy, have actually combined with a, a period of quite stagnant growth. Now, there have been various headwinds facing the global economy in that period of time. But still, technology hasn't been able to break out of that box and return us to the kind of growth rates that we saw through the 50s, 60s and 70s. So I think there's a lot of scepticism um, that at least in the short to medium term, there is going to be this transformational um, shift, albeit connected with a lot of hype about the possibilities and trying to square that circle and do so in an honest way is, is really hard. Combination of both hope and hype by the sound of it. Thank you, Simon. There was this fantastic essay written in 1977 on why lactation was important. It was actually published in a month when I was actually being breastfed, which I kind of like that connection. <laughs> in this month's Naked Genetics, you're a mammal, I'm a mammal, as are whales, lemurs, pandas and polar bears. But what exactly is a mammal anyway? Plus, the surprising genetic diversity of Papua New Guinea and a gene of the month that's up all night. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Georgia Mills, and with Chris Smith. We're asking our panel important questions about AI. What is it? Will it change the world? And if so, for better or for worse? 
One quick tweet, if you'd like to get in touch with us, incidentally, it's uh, at Naked Scientists on Twitter, at Berrigan on Twitter, and this is perhaps something you could uh, talk about, please, Peter, just very briefly. I think intelligence should be distinguished from mere algorithms when discussing AI. In other words, the difference between a computer program that just does stuff and a computer program capable of being an artificial intelligence. Could you distinguish for us very briefly? So I think there's, um, I think the artificial intelligence is a very broad term. So it's, it really comes down to a definitional thing of the word half the time. In a machine learning sense, this is where systems can look through lots and lots and lots of data and actually refine the way they they do things and the decisions that they make through that feedback with the data with the with the with reality so rather than having something that's pre-specified where you say this is what you do under these circumstances and you run the program these are actually systems that can learn through through interaction and learn through data Thank you, Peter. Now, we've just been hearing about good AI and what it can do, but in some cases, AI might actually be needed to protect us from more AI. Globally, crime committed online costs economies and individuals over $3 trillion per year, and that's predicted to more than double within the next five years. So can AI help us to combat this threat, or will it just help to fuel the fire? Dave Palmer works with the Cambridge-based cybersecurity company Darktrace. Darktrace's interest is, can we use advanced mathematics and AI to uh, really replicate the idea of an immune system where we know the normal self of everyone and everything inside of a business and how they all relate to each other? And if someone or something's behaving really strangely, then we can start to deal with that problem before it gets to the point where millions of credit card details are lost or medical records or uh, a manufacturing plant gets shut down. How would that work in practice? Uh, we're very predictable in how we behave using our smartphones and our laptops and all the, the different technology that exists within uh, particularly businesses. And so by understanding you know, what it means to be me, what it means to be Dave and how I use my email and all the different pieces of technology inside of my business, then we can tell if perhaps my laptop's been infected and is starting to hoard data or communicate with the outside world in a way that suggests it might be under someone else's control. And then we can start to do something about it. Now, that could either be telling a human being, hey, here's a problem and you should go and check it out. Or increasingly, uh, the cybersecurity industry is going to be moving into um, autonomous response, having the machines on our behalf actually start to deal with problems and slow them down or even potentially clean them up in the longer term. Okay, and what's the uh, machine learning aspect of this technology? Imagine a modern business or even look around wherever you are now. You'll start to see technology everywhere, whether it's digital phones, um, smart TVs, video conferencing units, and of course, all the things we take for granted, like laptops and smartphones and, and data centers and, and the cloud. And there's an enormous amount of complexity there. It's not unusual to find in an organization of, say, 10,000 people, that there are probably at least 50,000 pieces of technology as a rule of thumb. And so using the AI techniques to be able to learn what's normal and really truly understand the relationships between all those technologies and all those people, instead of asking the humans to do it, is, is really very useful indeed. And then the humans can just be told about the things that are interesting instead of having to try and wade through all of that complexity and guess everything that might go wrong. And you mentioned um, Darktrace uh, spots unusual activity straight away, something's not quite right. But is there a way to sort of block the holes before they're, they're entered in the first place? Is it possible to, to use uh, machine learning to have a hackable proof system? I'm very cautious about saying yes to that, given where we are in uh, as a society under considerable digital attack at the moment. I think the the thing that's really hard about cybersecurity is there isn't a perfect answer on what secure looks like. Every part of our digital life is is based on millions, if not billions, of lines of code written by different people from all over the world and different companies and supply chains that are very deep indeed. And so the idea of using machines to go through and evaluate the riskiness of every single line of code and, and piece of software that, 
that we kind of take for granted in the interactions that we have on a daily basis, I think is quite far away. I think we need to have made an awful lot of progress on AI before it's smart enough to do that, Much getting much closer to artificial general intelligence than the artificial narrow intelligences we have today. But that said, I think AI will start changing everything in the cybersecurity sector. I think there will be replacements for the antivirus that we will run on our on our laptops with something that's AI enhanced and better at stopping bad stuff. Does the technology make it easier or more difficult for people like you to protect our data? We can definitely expect AI to start making spam much more effective than it's been in the past. There's a really quick example. Imagine my laptop got hacked and a piece of AI software on my laptop was able to train itself on all of my emails, my calendar, uh, my iMessages, my WhatsApp. It would then be able to individually communicate with all the people in my life, replicating my communication style to spread itself. And perhaps, so you and I have a, a shared diary appointment to talk today. Perhaps it sends a little note to you saying, oh, I have some questions. Could you have a look at this attachment and let me know what you think? Um, I think you'd probably open that email because it's going to sound like it's from me and it's going to be contextually relevant. I will have to watch out for that in the future. That was Dave Palmer from Darktrace. Now, it's almost certain that whether we realise it or not, many of us will have interacted with an artificial intelligence on many occasions already. These systems answer telephones, they work out what adverts to show you when you go online, and they select and prioritise news stories for you. And this is all based on what the system is constantly learning about you, your preferences, and even your political leanings. And many of these systems are scarily invisible to us, but not all of them. And recently, a number of companies have brought up devices that you can speak to and instruct verbally. They can find information, music, even do your shopping for you. Amazon's offering is their Echo technology, which is called Alexa. Hello, Alexa. How are you today? Great. Thank you. I hope you're doing well too. So earlier we were wondering about um, the market value of AI. Let's see if Alexa can help us. Alexa, what is the market value of artificial... Sorry, (laughs) I don't know that one. Alexa? I'm good. I hope you're doing well too. So I think that's teaching you that never work with animals, children and robots. (laughs) Let's try something else. Alexa, tell us a joke. Did you hear about my dad's restaurant on the moon? The food is okay, but it has no atmosphere. (laughs) Alexa, that was a very bad joke. Well, I have to confess, it did make me chuckle a bit. Ask (laughs) me for another joke and maybe the next one will make you smile. Okay, Alexa, tell us another joke. What do you get if you spill tea on a rabbit? A hard cross bunny. Uh, <laughs> this could give me a run for my money. People are often <laughs> criticising the calibre of my humour on this show. Well, now you know. Well, <laughs> it so- could be worse, couldn't it, Henry? Uh, Alexa, can you tell us a haiku? Order a pizza. <laughs> Turn on lights. Get me a car. I have my needs too. Hey. That's not bad. <laughs> Alexa... Can you tell us a limerick, please? I couldn't find a contact matching Alexa. Can you tell us a limerick, please? (laughs) To see your contacts, go to the Alexa app. Alexa, tell us a limerick. There once was a bloodthirsty shark who took a tough bet on a lark. He vowed no more meat, just plants I will eat. Now he feasts on seaweed and bark. Bad. Can, can we, you know, we're, we're playing around with this. And actually, I've got an email here from um, Mark, who, in reaction to this, says, I set up telephone banking with voice recognition. It kept failing and throwing me out. I had to revert back to normal logins. I think we're a very long way off yet. How is this sort of technology working, though, Peter? With this, this gadget we have sitting here on the desk, for people who haven't seen an Alexa, this is a slightly overgrown sort of cardboard tube type size, isn't it? The kind of thing your kitchen roll would be on. What's that doing, and how's it doing what it's sorry, doing? Sorry, I don't know. Uh, when, it's, when, it's, when it's not saying sorry for things. Um, so this is actually one example of the type of, this type of almost un, more unsupervised type of sorry, technology. Sorry, <laughs> Some of the huge advances that have come recently in these types of computational, uh, the computational power of these things has come from these methods where you can learn from a very large amount of data quite complex 
interrelated structures in a way that aren't really handcrafted. And so the algorithms that are behind Alexa have, have listened to many, many millions and millions and millions of hours of speech. And from that, with context and labels and what the speech is about, and have, have learned these mappings between language and concepts in a slightly in a different way to hand coding them in a standard algorithmic sense. Henry? I also just wanted to flag that it's easy to look at so many aspects of AI these days, like voice assistants, and think, gosh, they're so terrible. But we also shouldn't expect AI to improve in a completely linear fashion. So a couple of years ago, Google rolled out a new algorithm in its uh, translation systems that was drastically better than the one that was in place before. So we may laugh at the kind of mistakes that Siri and uh, Alexa make at the moment, but then the next generation could not just be 1% or 5% better. It could be have whole new capabilities we can't imagine. What's reassuring for me is it's clear that uh, Alexa's not going to be taking my job as a radio and podcast presenter anytime soon. So it's very good, isn't it? Now, on to our next question. Will an artificially intelligent robot take my job? Indeed. So Simon Beard, uh, what do you think about that one? Well, I mean, you say that it won't take your job anytime soon. Actually, these things are very hard to predict because of the non-linearity. So yes, Alexa, you couldn't plug Alexa into the decks and she'd run the program. But actually, it's not impossible that the next algorithm that comes out will be a whole step change better. And actually, you will get, you know, artificial um, radio presenters way before we know it. It's very hard to know what's going to happen in the short term. It's not so hard to know what's going to happen in the long term, just because we've actually got a lot of years of data here about how machines and computers and artificial intelligence have worked and that you do get you know, quite predictable long-term patterns of improvement. So in the long term, the answer to this question on one level does seem like it's yes. It's hard to imagine a job which you could not get an algorithm to do at least as well as a person and more cheaply or probably much better than a person could and more cheaply as well. However, that's only the first level. That's the kind of rational economics view of employment. And we know that it doesn't work like that. Actually, people spend a lot of money on things that aren't about doing a job better or doing it more cheaply. People's habits are based on ethical values. They're based on social interactions. They're based on status, on appearance, on how things look to other people. And there are very good reasons to think that human beings will have an edge for many, many of those things for a long time to come. You know, people care about people. We like to interact with people, even if it's not so good sometimes as interacting with a machine. It's not so efficient. At the moment, we're more used to it being frustrating to interact with machines. But as I say, in the long run, that is likely to change. But we still like people. We like to have handmade goods, even if they're not so well made. We pay more for them. And so on that basis, I find it hard to see a situation in which people will be written out of the job market, in which there will be no jobs for people. But the reason why people employ other people will be different. It won't just be about getting the job done as cheaply as possible. We won't be employing people in sweatshops or on the minimum wage. There will be no reason to do that. The reason for employing people are going to be social. They're going to be value-based. They're going to be status-based. Do you yeah. not think there's going to be a problem then? Because if what you're saying is true and there are very few jobs that that would not be predated by artificial intelligence, not necessarily tomorrow, but in the future. Does that not add up to a recipe for kind of mass panic and people being out of jobs and a meltdown in the sort of fabric of society, which for, for you know thousands of years has been based around being paid for industry? Well, so we have luckily seen ourselves go through a variety of this kind of step change, where the reason that people get employed to do things and the way that they get employed to do things changes dramatically. So it changed during the Industrial Revolution. It changed during the first wave of automation and the you know, ending of the Industrial Revolution in developed countries. And these are definitely stressful, difficult transitions. They do you know, link to increases in violence, to political dissatisfaction. But on the other hand, we are an amazingly adaptive species. They don't produce social meltdown. Sometimes they produce political revolution, but actually more often they don't. Do we need some legislation in place, though? Because are we not sleepwalking a bit into a situation where suddenly we might find things changing very, very quickly and we yeah. have not got any laws in place or anything to, to make sure that companies do do right by their workers? Absolutely we do, but the legislation we need needs to be forward-looking, not 
past looking. So one of the examples that I use is that if you consider the Industrial Revolution, you know, it was the same set of technological changes that produced very egalitarian societies like Sweden and Japan, and also very, very unequal societies like the USA and China. And government regulation has an awful lot to do with that. Um, but a big part of it is we can't legislate on the basis of just keeping hold of what we've got at the moment, not only because that will be an ineffective, but because the wrong sort of legislation is likely to lead to bad outcomes. We have to look at what is coming and what we want to get out of, of that. So that's going to mean, you know, work, keeping hold of working protection, but refocusing it. We're not so worried about working protection in terms of industrial a accidents. We are. We should be now much more worried about workers' rights in terms of social and emotional strain, because that's what people are going to be employed to do. It's going to be providing these social and emotional services. So the kind of exploitation you're going to see is going to be exploitation of people's you know, emotional resilience and their social connectedness and so on. And that's the sort of thing that we need to protect against going forward. Simon, thank you. Simon Beard there from the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Georgia Mills. We're counting down to artificial intelligence with our seven top questions about what the future might bring. So on to our next question. Will we ever have truly smart machines? So Peter Clark, what do you think? Will we ever have a truly smart machine? Um, I think it depends what you mean by truly smart. But yes, I think it's very likely, I think almost inevitable that at some point in the future, as yet undetermined time frame, that we will have things that are smarter than us across pretty much everything. Um, it's, it's managing that long-term vision, that long-term uh, trajectory. We're already, so you can already see that, um, for example, you have in terms of, doctor's diagnostic so you can have ECGs can are better at picking up certain types of heart problems than trained doctors already um, in terms of interpreting x-rays and a whole bunch of other medical things um, some of these new algorithms surpass human intelligence in some sense but getting towards a general intelligence is a different matter what, what um, do you think, Henry? Well, so I thought um, your listener who uh, commented on Twitter about the need to distinguish algorithms from intelligence is onto a really important point. Um, and I think intelligence is one of these deep, socially laden concepts that's hard to define and carries a lot of baggage with it. And we can draw upon different fields that have used the term intelligence in different ways. So I think one, one source of guidance here might be from um, biology, where biologists have been interested in a very long time in quantifying different kinds of intelligence in animals. And that's not just a matter of how well an animal can do a certain thing. You know, spiders are brilliant at building webs. Dogs have amazing sense of smell. And when you're looking at sort of the biological context, they look for things like ability to engage in novel behaviours, things to engage in flexible behaviours. So it's that kind of ability to cope with new circumstances, different kinds of tasks that seems to be a key part of intelligence from the way biologists are looking at it. And I think if we're thinking about how to how, when we're going to ever really have smart machines, that kind of flexibility is going to be part of the answer. Is there this idea that we might things might speed up incredibly once we start getting smarter and smarter machines? Are we even on this curve yet? When do we think it might happen? Obviously, with things like the internet, you know, uh, we have amazing new research tools. So we have it's far easier to collaborate and, and learn. And you think, well, we've got better tools now, so surely technological progress should be speeding up. But you also face the fact that a lot of the low-hanging fruit of technology, a lot of the easy problems um, have already been solved. So although we might have new advantages coming from smart machines, as we uncover more and more limits in technology, we're going to face correspondingly larger problems. So we might just keep pace rather than speed up. Do you think there could be more nefarious ways that these artificial intelligences could undermine us, Simon? And with that in mind, uh, how we actually need to, to watch out? Well, I mean, to, to quote Alexa, I'm sorry, I don't know that. We, we need to be alert to what might happen. But at the moment, it's very hard to predict. We are dealing with non-linear changes. We are dealing with, you know, technologies that are increasingly hard to explain how they work, even to people with a technical background. And the goal isn't to try and make predictions and then work now based on exactly what is going to happen next. It is to try and work out the possibility space, um, the best things and the worst things, the steps that we can take 
that are likely to move us towards the best and away from the worst, but also crucially to just keep on monitoring the situation and keep alive to it and keep future focused on how we can most quickly react to the changes that we're seeing. Let's move on to our next question. Will AI ever become conscious? Mm, This sounds like going into the realm of philosophy a bit. So I think uh, this is one for you, Henry. So consciousness is, on the one hand, uh, one of the greatest mysteries that we still face as a species. But it is something where we are getting greater uh, understanding from neuroscience and cognitive science more broadly. Um, Still, though, I think a lot of scientists would really be happy if we stopped talking about consciousness. But I don't think we can. Um, Consciousness is deeply bound up with our ideas about morality and value. So just to give a simple example, if we're thinking about the ethics of, say, um, boiling a lobster alive, which is often how lobsters are cooked, I think a key question we're going to ask in thinking about whether that's humane is, does the lobster feel pain? Does it have conscious experience of its pain? So I think um, we can't ignore problems about consciousness. Broadly speaking, there's no reason to think we couldn't build a conscious AI, but it may not be very obvious when we've done so. Um, Mm. There's still no clear consensus about what consciousness is for and what kinds of functions in the human mind it's associated with. So even if we do build a conscious AI, we may not know it right away. Mm, Alexa, are you conscious? I know who I am. Let's put it that way. So Alexa could have said anything there. So that I guess this takes us to the point, how would we ever know if something was conscious or it wasn't? Well, so the gold standard for thinking about tests of consciousness um, is a thought experiment dating back to the amazing British polymath Alan Turing. In 1950, he proposed this test, which is now known as the Turing test, where basically the idea is if you have a computer system in one room and a human in another, and you're talking to them both via a terminal, so you can't see which one is which, and you're at chance when you're, when you're forced to guess as to which one is the computer and which one is the human. In other words, the computer is, can completely fool you that it's a human being. At that point, Turing says, we've got no business denying consciousness and intelligence to the, to the computer system because it, it's passing itself off completely as a, as a human being. Now, that, I think, is quite a popular test um, for consciousness and has been very influential. But it did face some pushback in the 80s via a classic follow-up thought experiment by uh, American philosopher John Searle, who came up with this idea of what he called the Chinese room. And basically, the point of this is to show that you can get stuff that looks like real intelligent understanding which actually is very, very simple. So the way the Chinese room works is you imagine you've got someone who doesn't speak any Chinese at all, and they're sitting in a little booth surrounded by index cards. And there's a slot in the booth, and you can post a question in Chinese script in through this slot. And what the person inside the booth does, they don't understand Chinese, but they can look in the index cards, each of which tells you sort of what to reply in Chinese. So the index card gets posted in, um, they find the corresponding answer card, write out these symbols that they don't understand, they're just copying them, and they post it out. And the idea is if you had a big enough sort of library of index cards so that all possible questions and answers were covered, this person could do a brilliant job of simulating that they understand Chinese, whilst in fact all they'd be doing is following a simple sort of lookup table of instructions. Now extending this to human beings, the idea is maybe we could have a computer that passed the Turing test by doing basically that. It's just got a huge massive database of possible questions and answer responses it can give, but it doesn't understand the words. So that's put some pressure on the Turing test as this measure of consciousness. Maybe a computer could trick us into thinking it's conscious by actually doing something pretty dumb. Does it also matter, um, Henry, if, if a machine mm. is is conscious, does, does that really matter? So I think it matters in two ways. Um, the first is we might actually start to worry about our ethical treatment of machines if there is a reason to think they're conscious. So this is something that's explored in uh, shows like Westworld or Humans, where you have these tools, basically, that people use for you know their basest instincts. Maybe if you're just dealing with things that are basically human-shaped robotic vacuum cleaners, that doesn't make a difference. But if you're dealing with things with real emotions or real cognitive capabilities, then you might start to think we need to regulate that behaviour. The other reason you think it might matter is if people start getting relationships, friendships or even romantic relationships with AIs, as we've seen in movies like Her, then it might matter to the people involved. You know, they want to know not just that their uh, AI can simulate love or emotions, but it's actually feeling and reciprocating these things. Isn't one of the attractions of things like AI that actually it's not biased by many of the what we regard as human flaws, like 
innate biases or mm. prejudices or emotions that get in the way of a decision where your heart rules your head. And if we end up with machines that become a bit conscious and they start doing things very well like we do, they'll end up like us and so they'll think like us and be flawed like us, won't they? Well, we can decide... Uh, as we develop these machines, what kind of architectures, how, what kind of structures we want to put in place in terms of how, how their cognitive systems develop. So we might be able to make some conscious choices to avoid the biases along the way. Um, and I, I don't think consciousness necessarily means, you know, the full kind of emotional complexity of human beings. Um, it could just be something as simple as uh, feeling pain as a case of consciousness. Nonetheless, I think there are reasons to worry about importing human biases over into machines, particularly given that a lot of AI progress in recent years has been driven by uh, basically mass data revolution, taking data out there on the internet and plugging it into, into computational systems. So there's a risk in doing that, that things like stereotypes uh, about gender or race get imported into the AI just because they're being exposed to the internet and all the different biases people have. Yes, in fact, wasn't there um, an episode earlier in the year, Microsoft created a Twitter bot to learn from the rest of Twitter. And I think within 24 hours, it had become racist. Yeah, uh, pretty unsurprising. And you, and you find things like um, gender stereotypes about professions. So, you know, just as Google autocomplete faces worries about the kind of things that people most frequently search for, often carry hints of gender bias or racial bias. If that's just the data we're plugging into the machines, then it's a bit much to accept them to be better than us. And could this be a real problem in society if people like the police end up using AI um, to do their jobs? Could we end up with something that we assume is neutral than not being, and this could cause problems. Yeah, so this is a real motivation for um, a desire for transparency in AI. It's particularly complicated these days because a lot of the algorithms that are being used are basically blind. We don't know we don't know how they're solving the problems. We can sort of reverse engineer them, but because there's a lot of self-learning going on, it's not always immediately clear why a system is making the decisions it's making. So, you know, if you ask a system, if a system singles out a person for a stop and search or someone um, going through airport customs gets singled out, we may not simply be able to say, okay, what were the criteria used if it's been subject to this kind of elaborate self-learning system? So we need to think about transparency too. Mm, Peter, as someone who works on this, what would you say to this question of consciousness? Um, I think it's very interesting. And I think it's, I still having thought quite a lot about it, don't really know what consciousness actually is. I think there's that sort of sense of you being here and now and living in that moment and feeling. If that's the definition of consciousness, then I think that probably extends across a vast amount of the animal world. Um, and I think that if we're going to worry about consciousness in artificial intelligences we probably need to spend more time worrying about consciousnesses within nature simon a quick thought from you the definition of consciousness is the key thing here consciousness is subjective experience and we all feel we know what it is but there have been various attempts to define consciousness in ways that allow us to make more progress in identifying it in animals or machines so defining it as a property of informational systems by various axioms that consciousness conscious systems have so they're indivisible they model the universe they model themselves in relation to the universe and so on and i think that these kind of theories give us a lot of hope for understanding consciousness my only problem is I think that when a lot of people talk about consciousness they want it to be magic they want it to be unexplainable and so if we come up with a system like this that does allow us to say for instance is Alexa, Alexia conscious then actually people just won't buy it because we feel that our consciousness is kind of the last domain of our um, uniqueness as a species and we're quite strongly set up to defend that but in defending it, we tend to come up with phrases and questions that are just unanswerable, uh, undefinable. And, and that is really getting in the way of clearly thinking through the ethics of AI. Yeah, I think this is one we could debate till the cows come home, maybe something to take to the pub after the show. Uh, but for now, on to the next question. How worried should we be about AI? Well, should we ask Alexa what, what her plans are? Alexa, are you going to take over the world? I have nothing to do with Skynet. <laughs> so it does at least have a sense of humour. Well, in the meantime, we asked Dave Palmer, who you heard from earlier, he's from Darktrace, what he thought about the dangers of AI. There is um, absolutely no um, remotely imminent technologies or research that is going to create something that is um, societally damaging or um, create a self-aware robot that could do us some harm. But there are plenty of things that we should 
be worried about that perhaps um, evil people might do. And things like weaponized drones or um, um, some of the potentially negative side effects of things like gene editing and DNA editing are far more concerning than the, the rise of the Terminator. We're not going to see that in my lifetime, uh, no way. There are many people, including um, a professor, Professor Ng, that I respect enormously, that would say AI is the next electricity. So if steam power was the first industrial revolution, um, electric, uh, electricity the uh, second industrial revolution, computing the third, um, AI is probably going to be the fourth. And, and I would agree with that. What we're seeing is the emergence of techniques that allow us to deal with really complex things that were previously out of the reach of what we could do with computers and programming. And it's near impossible to extrapolate where that ends up. But it's an enormously exciting time, too. I'm sure in 10 years, just as we've got completely used to and normalized the fact that we've all got these little smartphone supercomputers in our pockets uh, and they don't seem remarkable anymore. Well, maybe in 10 to 15 years, we'll feel the same way about AI, that it will have changed how we uh, interact with each other and also how we interact with the world, but pretty much all for the better. Dave Palmer from Darktrace there. So, Simon, as someone who works at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, are those sentiments in line with your assessment of the risks? How do we assess it? Well, the first thing I want to say is, just going back to the question that you asked, how much should we worry about AI? I think worry is a very unhelpful response to the risks of AI. So it's really hard to assess the risks of AI. What we do know for sure is that there are possible bad outcomes that could occur from developing AI. None of those are anything to do with the Terminator or other stories. Those are just stories about people. They tell us a lot about ourselves, but next to nothing about AI, and they don't really appear on our radar. But there are lots of things that could go wrong. And lots of those, particularly in the short to medium term, are indeed, as David Palmer was saying, about the interaction between people and AI. We get things wrong. AI could give us the potential to get things wrong so much worse, just like nuclear weapons do. But worrying about that isn't necessarily going to make it less likely. So that's not the response that we need to have. What we need to do is to get enough clever people working on how to prevent bad things happening to stop them before they happen. And that's the key thing about centres like mine, is just to solve these problems before they become problems and no one has to worry about them. Can you give me an example of one of these potential problems and how we might uh, reduce this risk other than just sort of run, running to the hills? Sure. Well, so one very specific example that we're concerned about is um, the use of AI and other algorithms in the modernization of nuclear weapons. So this is a great one for us because it's the interaction between two existential risks, artificial intelligence on the one hand and nuclear weapons. And we know that lots of states, the US in particular, are going through a process of modernizing their nuclear weapons launch systems. They're currently very technologically stuck in the 1970s. And algorithms have the potential to greatly increase the efficiency of those systems and make them much better, according to the kind of game theory models that nuclear weapon systems are based around. But actually, historically, we've seen there have been too many near misses where it's been down to individual discretion and people have made what may at the time have looked like the wrong choice to avert a nuclear um, counter-strike and later it's emerged that the technology was faulty. So that's one we're looking at right now where there is a potential if this goes wrong for AI to actually cause a lot of damage in the very short term. But to see it is to realise a problem and hopefully therefore to avert it. So don't worry about it but that's just an example of what we need to avoid. Peter? Um, I don't know. I think that there are so many potential risks. I don't think we can say don't worry about it. I think even with respect to jobs, you know, yes, we can all get jobs looking after each other. But at the end of the day, the thing that drove urbanization and sort of industrialization and, and that move towards uh, you know, were people working to make things. And once you take that away, you are taking a large proportion of humans economic value in that standard system away right and so um, I think there are dangers along that race and I think there are also dangers on any power structures you know Putin came out and said that there was this AI arms race starting and whoever whoever won it was going to rule the world right and we're potentially entering into a completely new type of military arms race 
and we don't necessarily know how that's going to come about. And there were there are already weaponized artificial intelligence systems and with robots and drones and things like that. And you can imagine uh, automatic targeting. All the technology exists to do that already. I've got a tweet here. You're talking about um, weaponizing things. Uh, John Hancock says at Naked Scientist, if the Terminator is possible and it hasn't been back for Trump, that means there's worse coming yet. Well, speaking of Twitter, there was the idea that AI in the form of Twitter bots might have actually impacted on the US election, which is which is quite a scary thought. Yeah, so I, th- I think that is very interesting. That's a whole interesting area, and actually, that it does come down to people. And you know, people were were driving those things, and they were using systems to shift democratic uh, process. So I think this uh, brings us to our, our final question quite nicely: Is AI worth the risk? So let's get everyone involved. I'll, I'll just go around the room. Hitesh, you are here as a representative of the pharmaceutical industry. Is AI worth the risk? Having weighed up what you've heard presented to you this evening? Yeah, because for us, it's all about patients and helping patients. You know, we've I'm, I'm a big fan of digitization of healthcare in general and and wearables, etc. And we're I've seen lots of companies outside using it to predict heart failure, for example. I think that's only going to help people that might uh, have that disease. So I think it's going to help patients for, for to me. So yes, Henry, uh, I think. Artificial intelligence is the greatest opportunity in human history so far, and it could easily go horribly wrong, or it could be the thing that really is marks the moment of our species growing out of its infancy. Um, particularly, I think, once we start looking at the possibilities like superintelligence, building AI that's actually smarter than us, then it's really hard to see past that point and imagine what amazing future that could hold. It's not, I think, far-fetched to think that once we start to get the kind of research, incredible research tools provided by uh, artificial intelligence at the level of humans or beyond, then we might start to conquer things like aging, disease, and even start thinking about things like human immortality. This also connects to another area where AI could potentially be change our species beyond recognition, which is the idea that we might ourselves become AIs at some point in the in the sense that we might upload our minds or augment ourselves. And that is a frightening but also very exciting possibility. Simon, do you think it's worth the risk? I think you need to realise that we're not in a risk-benefit mindset. This is a risk-risk mindset. At the moment, humanity is facing huge risks from climate change, from pandemics, from um, other kinds of emerging technology, from nuclear weapons. And one of the things that AI offers us is actually a way out of many of those other risks, a way towards civilizational resilience, which we can count on. And to my mind, that is the real prize that AI gives us is it could be our best bet to survive as a species. So we shouldn't give up on it. Now, of course, with any risk-risk trade-off, you could end up going down the wrong, you know, things could turn out wrong. It could be that we would have survived the other existential risks we face and actually AI poses our undoing. But from the evidence that we have at the moment, it does not seem like developing AI is a more risky of the options that are available to us. So on that basis, I'm happy to say, yes, it is. And uh, Peter, in the words of a famous shampoo brand, do you think it's worth it? I think it's going to transform the world. And I think that done in the right way, it will transform the world into something amazing and could make uh, really be such a massive positive force. But I also think that if handled badly, it could go wrong in so many ways as well. And so we're at a really delicate point in history. You know, how we how we move forward from this point and use this technology and make sure that we, we make the most of its potential and, and guard against the uh, worst of its um, potential on the other side um, is really going to define how human history progresses from here. And on that poignant note, we must leave it by thanking very much our contributors who were Hitesh Sangani, Peter Clark, Simon Beard and Henry Shevlin. The programme was put together by Michael Wheeler. Do join us next week when the Naked Scientists get under your skin, quite literally, as the programme explores your largest external organ. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, she's Georgia Mills, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.